Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, certified religious transition and trauma recovery coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello, and welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. It is time for the midweek question and answer. And today's question, you guys, is really just an amalgam of a whole bunch of different inquiries I've been getting on Instagram and TikTok and even in my email about shame. What is it? How can I tell if I'm experiencing shame instead of guilt? Tricky one, right? Because shame and guilt have the very same physiological responses. And it can be really difficult sometimes to tell, am I feeling shame or am I feeling guilt? What is this feeling I'm experiencing? And so I thought I'd do something different today. I'm an avid reader. I actually just finished a book called Finding God in the Waves by Mike McCargue. And for those of you who don't know Mike McCargue, he is this brilliant scientific mind. He has a podcast called uh, Science Mike, and he's also on the Liturgist podcast. And he is a person who has gone through a faith crisis, a faith transition. He has found his own brand of Christianity, if you will, after going through a phase of atheism. And this is his first book, Finding God in the Waves, and it's about how he lost his faith and found it again through science. And I read it because I have so many clients who really would like to find God again after a faith transition or who are worried about losing God throughout their faith transition. So this book came highly recommended, and so I read it, and I loved a good two-thirds of it. And I adore Mike McCargue. I love his other book, You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass. And I think he has come a long way from this first book. I think he's gotten therapy. He's gotten involved in feeling his feelings even more. He's worked through a lot more of his shame. But this book, Finding God in the Waves, the last third of the book, really shows his mental state at the end. If I were coaching him, one of the things that I do as a coach is I help people see where they still have shame stories or where they still have fear stories. And as I was reading this book, I wish you could see it right now. It's here in front of me. And it's got all of these sticky notes inside of it. And I've underlined things and I've written things in the margins. And so I thought what I would do today, because he gives us so many examples in his book of how he's experiencing shame, he's come to all of these beautiful conclusions. He's really worked things out in his head, but he's still having a hard time feeling through emotions. And shame is one of the emotions he has not processed And you can tell in his book. So I thought I would bring you on a little literary journey today to show you what shame looks like in real time. And so you might hear the pages turning because we're going to sit here and have some story time and some discussion. And I'm going to bring you into my thought process and help you identify shame in some of his statements. Okay, so the very first story he tells is all about 
coming out to his church, and his church found out in a very painful way. He had been on some podcasts. He had written some blog posts, and people in his Southern Baptist congregation had found out that he had spent the past two years as sort of a secret atheist, even though he was a deacon in his church and was teaching Sunday school and loved teaching. And it was really, really difficult for members of his church, which I'm sure you can all relate with. And he says, so I sat down with my pastor and told him I wanted to resign as a deacon and Sunday school teacher. I told him I wanted to do it in a way that didn't make our church look bad. I didn't want anyone to think I'd been kicked out. So full stop right there. You can hear there's a right way to do this and a wrong way to do this. And you guys, there is no right way to deconstruct your faith. All of us will do it differently. We'll all follow a path inside of us, and sometimes it will make our congregation look bad. There is no way to process trauma that doesn't sometimes reflect poorly on the place where we received the trauma. When we experience religious trauma in our church congregations, the people in that congregation are supporting roles in what we experience, and there really is no way to admit trauma, to own our shame, to own our story without also implicating the congregation where we experience the trauma. He says, I didn't want to make our church look bad. So you can kind of hear this this feeling of there's a right way to do this. I want to be the good guy. And like he said, I didn't want anyone to think I had been kicked out. Because if you're kicked out, what does that mean about you? It means you're a bad person, that you did something bad. You're deserving of being booted out. And he was really worried about what people would think of him because there was a part of him that felt unworthy. There was a part of him that felt like maybe he was bad. And Mike, if you ever hear this, I am more than happy to talk about this with you. But if I were coaching you, this is something that I would look into and I would say, hey, tell me more about not wanting people to think you've been kicked out. What is the thought process behind that? What would being kicked out mean about you? If you had done something that had caused you to be kicked out, what would that mean about you? And so often at the core of I don't want people to think bad things about me is this shame of I'm worried about what people will think. I'm worried they think I'm a bad person. It's also evidence that we've been giving power to outside sources for validation And that we haven't really anchored into our own self-worth. We're not looking to ourselves for worthiness. We're looking to other people to validate that we're worthy. And that usually comes from a shame response. So right there, I would have questioned him about that. So this would have been an indicator to me that he's likely experiencing some shame, that there's a right way to do this that doesn't make the church look bad, that he has to be the good guy. And I didn't want anyone to think I had been kicked out. He doesn't want other people to think he's a sinner. He doesn't want other people to think he's evil. And I think we can all relate with that. I still find myself occasionally worrying that other people think I'm evil or that I'm a bad person. And I do the same thing I just told you I would do with him. I stop and say, hey, I caught that thought. You're worried about what other people will think. Tell me about that. What would it mean about you if other people thought you were evil? What is that thought in your head? So you can stop and get curious with yourself and say, oh, I caught that thought. You're worried about what those people think. Why? If they did think bad things about you, what would that mean about you? How would that change anything in your life? What sorts of stories would that create in your life? 
So just getting curious can really help us kind of dig down. And that's what I do as a coach. He says, I can't overstate how kind and helpful the pastor was. He listened and he encouraged me, even as he made it clear he disagreed with my understanding of the Christian faith. So we're not just going to talk about the shame feelings we experience. We're going to talk about subtle shaming that happens when we leave the congregation because there are very consistent patterns of subtle shaming that happen even in the kindest of congregations whenever we leave. And right here, the fact that he didn't just empathize and encourage him and suggest that he follow his inner knowing, that he was loved and he'd belong no matter what, he had to make it clear he disagreed with my understanding of the Christian faith. It's almost like he was saying, you know, yeah, I see why you have issues and problems, but I think you're wrong. My understanding is different, and I think you're wrong. And it's a very subtle shaming technique that happens when people try to empathize with us, but they don't want to empathize with us too much because we might not come back. And when you have a very black and white thinking of this is right, this is how we get to heaven, and this is wrong, and you're going to burn in hell, it's almost like we can't allow ourselves to empathize completely because if we empathize completely, people might make the choice never to come back and that's unacceptable because we believe they'll burn in hell forever. Or in the case of Mormonism, go to a lower kingdom where they'll never get to see God and they won't get to experience a fullness of the expression of who they could become. They can't become gods and goddesses, if you will. Here he says he disagreed with my understanding of the Christian faith. So he was just very, very subtly shamed there where he says, you know, I'm encouraging you. I'm listening to you. I'm here for you. And you're wrong. He says, there were no torches or pitchforks chasing me out of our church's leadership. And I think most of us would say that we didn't experience any torches or pitchforks either. There is no shunning practice in Mormonism. And yet there's subtle shaming and subtle shunning that happens like I said, as a way to encourage us to come back, to let us know that we're on the wrong path. Because if we completely empathize, people may feel that what they're doing is okay and they may burn in hell. And then if your doctrine is the same as Mormon doctrine, we're held partly responsible for that, for not teaching correct principles. And that's the reason you feel bad when people say those messages. They're subtly shaming. Okay, so we move on. I hope you guys are enjoying this as much as I am because this is fun for me. He says, I expected everything to get better after I stepped down from my leadership position. Now that the church could distance itself from my opinions, the controversy would be over. Did you hear the shame there? My opinions are the problem, and the church needs to be able to distance themselves from my tainted opinions. It's really subtle, but it's there. Now that the church could be free of the stain that I am, the controversy would be over because it's my fault, because of my opinions. That's shame right there. And I could go back to sitting among people I loved every Sunday. I thought this would be an end to anonymous letters showing up at my office, to whispers that followed me down the hall on my way to Sunday school. Do you hear the shaming mechanisms? the talking about people behind their back, the whispering, the judgment, the way people look at you. Letters, anonymous letters of concern, 
of wrath, of disappointment, of sadness. These are all shame mechanisms to let people know they're doing the wrong thing. They're in danger of being kicked out of the tribe. It is a last-ditch effort to get people to fall in line and do the quote-unquote right thing and come back into the fold because the fold is right. And you are wrong because you're different. And that is a shame message. But church was never the same again, he says. Jenny and I looked for an adult Sunday school class, and I was shocked when someone called me at the office Monday morning to tell me the group wasn't comfortable with my presence. We never knew which Sunday at our own church could produce someone trying to correct me. And no way could we miss how many shoulders had turned cold. My family felt increasingly alienated in what once had been our spiritual home. Again, we're back to that subtle shaming. My guess is that his Southern Baptist congregation had no formal shunning practice, and still he was treated as if he was dangerous. He was treated as if he was fundamentally wrong, as if he was a poison or a canker. His old friends, people he had considered family or friends, were turning cold shoulders to him. They didn't want to hang out on the weekends. Their kids couldn't play with his kids, I'm guessing. People were trying to correct him, to argue with him. There was no empathy. There was just simply fall into line. Do it the right way. Don't go burn. These are subtle shaming and fear messages, trying to get people to get with the program and stay in the group. He says, so we did what anyone would do. We left our church. And ultimately, that's what shaming does. Shaming does not bring people back into the fold. It might for a short time. Shame has been shown to make people's behavior fall in line in the short term, but long term, it alienates us from one another. This is something I wish I could preach (laughs) from the rooftops to high demand religions and to really honestly any religion I know Christianity is losing people in droves, and this is something I wish they would understand, is when people leave, the more you can empathize, the more you can really just understand and listen, put yourself in the other person's shoes, the more likely they are to stay connected, the more likely they are to spend time in your presence. But when you shame, people feel so uncomfortable and so unworthy, eventually they leave. He says, over the next few months, we learned the near sacred pleasure of Sunday brunch and the miracle of a weekend that suddenly had two days. For the first time in my life, I didn't have a church. He says, but it broke my heart. Honestly, it hurt worse than my parents' divorce when we left the Baptist church behind. And I'm sure you guys can sympathize with him. You can empathize with him. We've all been through this. This was the hardest thing I had ever done, leaving the LDS church, leaving my identity. It was a death of myself. It was a death of my faith. It was a death of my relationship with God. It was social suicide. I lost an entire community of people. In many ways, it estranged me from my family of origin. It was incredibly painful. And not only was I having to rebuild my identity and deconstruct my faith and do all kinds of shame resilience exercises, I was having to deal with the judgment of other people. And I continue to have to deal with the judgment of other people as 
I find my new homeostasis. And I'm sure you can empathize with him as he says, this was the worst thing. This was the hardest thing he had ever done. He said, I'd proposed to my wife in that sanctuary, walked her down its center aisle on the day we wed. Both my girls were born while we were there, and both were dedicated to God in its Sunday services under the loving gaze of its pastor. We'd grieved there. We'd been comforted there. We'd fed the hungry there. We built our lives in its community. And that's really what this is about, is any other grief. He says, we had grieved there. And my guess is, when he was grieving any other thing aside from the loss of his faith, everyone circled the wagons. He had friends that were comforting him. If he had lost a child, if he had gotten a divorce, if he had experienced the death of a parent, if he had lost a job, anything, if his house had burned down. I mean, my family, we experienced our house burning down and the whole congregation grieved with us, brought us casseroles, made sure we were well fed, helped us put shingles on our roof, helped us rip out old drywall and put up new drywall. They babysat the younger kids. They were there in all sorts of capacities because that's what we do as a community. That's what we do as a family. But when you lose your faith, You are utterly alone so often. So many times we are left completely alone because we're dangerous. We're dangerous to the group and we get left out in the cold. Like he said, we get those cold shoulders and that is what makes this so incredibly hard. Now, here's where it gets interesting. He says, to this day, I can't drive by that church without saying a prayer for its every member, wishing them well and asking God to bless them. And honestly, as I was reading this, I put in the margins, it feels like he's trying too hard to be nice. How many of you have done this? Raise your hand. Oh my gosh, right? When I left the church, I was going to be this completely kind person that never said an ill word about the church. I was not going to be an angry apostate. And yet... The fact that he's telling me that he's always saying a prayer, he has nothing but kind feelings to people who were talking about him behind his back, whispering about him as he passed in the hall, sending him messages, you know, anonymous messages, calling him to repentance, telling him he couldn't come to Bible study because he wasn't welcome and other people were uncomfortable. Please tell me that this person, please tell me that Mike is not having all kinds of negative feelings. Tell me you lose an entire community and you don't feel betrayed. Tell me you don't feel angry. Tell me you don't feel lonely. And yet, he's doing what so many of us were taught to do. You have negative emotions. You numb them by praying. You numb them with service. You numb them by singing a little hymn. And he says, I can't drive by that church without saying a prayer for its every member, wishing them well and asking God to bless them. He still hasn't allowed himself to grieve and to feel his emotions and to really process what happened to him. This is toxic positivity. And my gosh, we need a full episode on this. But toxic positivity is where we try to put a positive band-aid on our really difficult emotions instead of feeling through them and cleaning out that wound. When we do that, that wound just festers. It does not go away. It does not heal. Okay. He says, we've all heard stories about people who've been hurt by church officiants committing untoward acts. Those experiences are genuine and important, but my tale isn't one of them. There was no villain here. 
there was no villain here because he doesn't consider what he experienced to be abusive or traumatic. He feels like what everybody did was okay because he's the bad guy. And my guess is he believes that he deserved it. He believes that he deserved to be ousted from the community, to be whispered about, to not be allowed to come to Bible study, to not be welcome at church because he did something that made other people uncomfortable. And this sort of tribalism mentality is what makes this so traumatic is because we're not allowed to differentiate ourselves. We're not allowed to think differently. There is shame if we do that. And there is a villain here. It might not be the people. The people often are just as victimized by the high demand religion as we are. So they're just operating from the mind control tactics that they've been taught, the indoctrination that they've been consuming likely their entire lives. So perhaps there is no villain in the congregation, but the doctrine itself, the things that we're teaching are the villain. They're not healthy. It's not okay. And when we're saying there's no villain, everything's fine. Like I have all of this grief and it was really difficult, but like everything's beautiful and I have no hard feelings. We're putting that positive bandaid on and we're just not able to process. He says, the people at my church loved me and the tension I experienced there wasn't caused by a loss of love, but by disagreement. And here's the thing. When we love someone and we disagree, we don't talk about them behind their backs. We don't kick them out of our congregations. Well, he wasn't kicked out. He left, but they kicked him out of Bible study and said he wasn't welcome there. We're not constantly correcting them and trying to make them fit our mold. Love accepts people as they are. Love does have disagreement, but love seeks to empathize with the other person and to understand, not to try to get them to conform. I was following a path toward who I believed God wanted me to be, and my church was being faithful in a way its members understood. But to stop fitting in at a church one loves can prove incredibly painful. And this is where we get to the crux of it. He said to stop fitting in. There is such a difference between fitting in and belonging. Fitting in is when we have to contort ourselves at least a little bit in order to be acceptable in the group. Belonging is where I get to show up in my authentic, messy, complicated human self and I am authentically loved and I belong even if I change, even if I grow, even if I make mistakes. I am welcome and I belong in all of my humanity. Who I am and who I evolve into is welcome. That's belonging. But here he says, I didn't fit in. I stopped fitting in. And when we fit in, it's because there's a shame element there that who we are authentically isn't good enough for the group. We have to get rid of pieces of ourselves in order to be acceptable. We wear a mask in order to be acceptable. Now, granted, it may be a very faint mask. We may have only given up a couple of things, but anytime there are parts of you you do not get to express because it's unacceptable, you are fitting in. You're not belonging, and there's a shame element there. He says, in these instances, the temptation might be to stay and tough out the discomfort. 
This seems a sensible instinct. After all, any relationship will go through periods of conflict and tension. People grow, change, and disagree. It's unrealistic, even unhealthy, to desire some kind of conflict-free utopia from our faith communities. And I agree. One of the benefits of a faith community is the disagreement. It is having to learn to get along with people who are wildly different from us. But faith communities are not the only place where we can do that. We can do that in our families. We can do that in other activism organizations. We can do that at work. Anywhere that people congregate, we're going to have conflict. He says, but I knew it was time to go when I died a little inside every Sunday. This is what it feels like to fit in when we're dying a little inside because we don't get to be all of ourselves. He says, I knew the time had come to move on when others were being hurt by the simple act of me being who I was. That is the biggest shame message I can share with you. When you believe that other people are being hurt by you being you, that you are inadequate as a human being, that there is something fundamentally wrong with you, and that other people would be better off without you. That is a huge shame message. At the very bottom of my depression, I believed the world would be better off without me because I was fundamentally flawed. And I hear some of that in Mike McCargue's language here. People were being hurt by the simple act of me being who I was. I am flawed. I am the problem, is what I'm hearing. That is a shame message. I had worried that my church might suffer without me, but I was wrong. My church suffered because of my presence, and it could only start to heal once I left. So there's so much to unpack here. I'm the problem. My church can only heal when I leave. I will sacrifice my well-being. I will sacrifice myself. This is such a codependent, people-pleasing behavior to say, At the detriment of my well-being, I will leave so that you can heal and get better because I'm the problem. Codependency always has a shame element where we're willing to sacrifice our needs, our desires, and our well-being in order to help other people feel better in their shame. And that's exactly what's going on here. So one more of these, and then I'm going to wrap up. I feel like we have really kind of dug into what shame could look like after we go through faith transition when we're in that in-between stage where perhaps our beliefs have changed. We have some cognitive dissonance. We're trying to decide whether to leave or we've just barely left. And a lot of what he's describing, we go through with our faith communities and with our families. And I want you to just use this episode to get curious with yourself. Am I telling myself some of these same things? Am I taking all the blame for the conflict in my life? Listen to where you're willing to sacrifice your own well-being so that other people are comfortable. Those are all going to be red flags. When you hear yourself taking all the blame, it's shame. Just get curious with what you're thinking. Allow yourself to feel through it. When you see yourself giving up your well-being, for the comfort of others, that's codependency. And we're going to be talking a lot about codependency. That's become my research. It's something that I'm researching deeply because I'm seeing it over and over and over and over again with my clients. High demand religions are highly correlated with codependent relationships, with family members, with spouses. But I'm also noticing codependency 
with the God we were taught about. The God that we were taught about often has narcissistic tendencies and we get into codependent relationships with that God or with the church itself. We become codependent with the church where we give up our own needs and our own desires in order to serve the church and make the church feel better. And in return, we hope for the validation and the self-worth that we're missing. So sometimes the church and God get conflated. Sometimes they're separate. But I'm noticing a lot of codependency here. And I'm seeing it even here in Mike McCargue's telling of his story of leaving. Okay, so let's wrap this up. I'm going to read one more thing. He says, on a cognitive level, I understood the sociological dimension of my faith transition. I was the one whose beliefs had changed. And that change was a violation of an unspoken social code in my church community. My closest friends felt betrayed and strained or broken relationships became inevitable. But even though I understood why everything had happened, it didn't bring me any peace. You guys, he's allowed to have beliefs that change. You're allowed to change your beliefs. You're allowed to grow and understand more. You're allowed to evolve as a human. You're allowed to mature. And people that can't handle that, it is not all your fault. Yes, you grew, you matured, but the fact that they can't handle that maturation, they can't handle beliefs changing says something about them as well. There cannot be conflict without two people. There are always two sides to the story. Yes, his closest friends felt betrayed, but so did he. Yes, there were strained and broken relationships, and yet he was trying to understand why everything happened and he was taking the whole burden on himself instead of holding other people accountable for their poor behavior as well. There feels like there's no boundaries here. He's just like, I deserve whatever you give me because I changed the rules. I quit believing. And you guys, you all know, none of us chose to quit believing. It's just like one day something clicked and our shelf broke. That's what I call it. That's what the ex-Mormon community calls it, at least, is where, you know, we have cognitive dissonance and we put those things up on our mental shelf and then finally it gets too heavy and it breaks and we can't justify the things that don't make sense anymore. And there's a deep sense of grief. There's a deep sense of betrayal. And especially if you're in a high demand religion where lots of things are covered up and where there is a deliberate attempt to hide certain information, of course you feel betrayed. It is not all your fault. It is not all their fault either. So it is a collective thing that we work together and no one has to take the blame. We just get to talk about these behaviors hurt me. And these behaviors hurt me. And we get to like go back and forth and work on those things together. But he talks about going to therapy. And really, this is where I want to end because this is where we really get into how to move through shame. So often when we go through faith transitions, we're not used to feeling our emotions. He says, Then she asked me how I felt about those experiences. And I immediately started to have a panic attack. I'm not prone to panic. And here's the kicker. I can generally turn off negative feelings like someone turning off a tap. If this describes you, you have learned to detach from your emotions and to numb. And we can do that in all kinds of ways. Maybe we detach and numb with the toxic positivity of thought stopping, of saying a prayer, singing a hymn, 
doing an active service, but maybe we also numb with too much social media or too much TV, or maybe we become workaholics or shopaholics, or maybe we go out and we golf every time we feel bad. We distract ourselves so we don't have to feel the feelings. We learn how to turn off the negative emotions like a tap. And this might sound great, but remember, we can't selectively numb emotions. So when we're turning those feelings off like a tap, we're also diminishing our ability to feel joy and peace and contentment. So he says, but this was different, like trying to hold back the pressure of the Hoover Dam with only a bathroom faucet. I sensed an impending breach of emotional pressure I hadn't even known was in me, and it scared the shit out of me. I felt out of control like a pilot who discovers that his control stick isn't working. For weeks, we returned to these childhood scenes. My therapist asked me what I thought would happen if I stopped fighting the pressure and just let it out. I told her... I would probably sob or get really angry or possibly both. Now stop right there. What did we just learn about Mike? What is not okay for Mike to feel in this chapter? He is trying so hard to hold back the dam because it's not okay to feel angry and it's not okay to cry. Sadness and anger were not an okay experience for him. They were forbidden emotions. He had learned to turn them off, to be acceptable. And by doing that, he detached from his inner knowing. Why would that be a bad thing, she asked. Those are such unpleasant, wasteful feelings. Why are they wasteful? We only get so many moments in life. Why would I spend them on feelings that don't feel good? How many times have we gotten this message at church? Just be happy. Joyfully do your work. Don't do it begrudgingly. Don't be angry. What happens is when we bottle up these emotions, when we're not allowed to feel, they fester. They do not go anywhere. They build up. And we actually end up spending more moments in life feeling feelings that don't feel good. Guarding feelings that don't feel good. Thought-stopping feelings that don't feel good. Whereas if we just allowed ourselves to feel them, it would only take a couple of minutes max to allow that feeling to come, to crest, and to dissipate. Allowing ourselves to feel things, even unpleasant things, allows us to move through and enjoy more of our life. He ends by saying, the more painful a story is to tell, the more we need to tell it. And the reason that is, is because there's shame involved and shame hates secrecy, silence, and judgment. And when we can tell our story in a safe space, we release shame and we're able to anchor into our self-worth much more quickly. I hope this was helpful. This little story time of ours. I hope you were able to see what shame might feel like in your own life, how you might see it in other people's lives and what to do with it how to get curious with it. Let me know if you still have questions about shame and we will delve in even deeper. Shame is a difficult emotion because it manifests in all different kinds of ways. I've gotten really adept at spotting it in myself and in others. And we give cues all the time. We give cues in our language. We give cues in our body language. We give cues in our tone of voice and our posture. We give cues 
with how willing we are to engage with the group. And it's so powerful to be able to sit with someone and ask curiosity questions. And you can do that for yourself. You can ask yourself, wow, you know, I notice I'm taking all the blame. What thoughts do I have going on? What do I believe about this? What's the story I'm telling myself? And is that true? Is it true that I'm completely responsible for everything that's happened, that I'm completely responsible for all of the conflict, that all of this is my fault because I'm a bad human or because I broke the social contract by having different beliefs? Or am I allowed to evolve and grow? Am I allowed to believe different things? And should I have a place of belonging even as I evolve? These are all great curiosity questions to ask ourselves. And the more curious we get with our shame, the more we're willing to recognize it, to speak shame out loud, the more resilient we become and the happier and freer we become as well. As we become shame resilient, we're able to allow it to just fall off of us. We're allowed to release it and let go of it and quit hanging on to it. And we get to feel better about ourselves. We get to feel more worthy. And when we feel more worthy, we feel happier and freer. And I want that for all of us. If you have questions you would like answered in the midweek question and answer, by all means, don't hesitate to reach out. Or if you have a book like this one that you would like me to read and you would like me to you know, talk about certain parts of it. I'm more than happy to do that as well with the limited time that I have. I'm always looking for great reading material that helps me understand this subject even better. Feel free to email me at the email in the show notes, terry at emancipatedcoaching.com. You can send me messages on Instagram. You can send me messages on TikTok, or you can come to the Facebook group and also ask questions. The Facebook group is called Emancipate Yourself. I'm Emancipated Molly on Instagram emancipated terry on tiktok and i look forward to hearing from you i've been having great conversations with people getting to know so many of you and i love every minute of it thank you for spending your time with me today and i will see you on sunday